Every friend who invests in the stock market invests in the US stock market. But it's so rare to hear a Singaporean investing in the American real estate market. But have you wondered, why is that so? If the actual returns for a retail property investor in Singapore are so low, why don't more Singaporeans just invest in the US property markets which have higher yields? If you have ever thought of investing in the US real estate market but don't know where to start, this episode is a great place to kick off your understanding of the US real estate market. Hey guys, I want to give a special shout out to our Instagram page. If you have yet to follow us there, what are you waiting for? Follow our cute little coconut for great reminders, content snippets, and great vibes to perfume your day. We know you'll love it as we expand our ecosystem to journey with you every step along the way. So come on to the Financial Coconut Instagram page now. Tag us whenever you see some interesting stuff. Help grow our community together. Link is in the description below. Welcome back to another day on the Coconut Avenue. Join us as we explore various property insights, investment strategies, and challenging property myths out there today. We'll be bringing on investors and experts in the game to share with us their insights and stories to better prepare us for our journey. Whether you're looking at your first property or building a bucket of gold through properties, there's something for you here. Ultimately, it's about helping you find your unique game plan. Today, we are joined by an experienced investor with more than 16 years in the real estate private equity investing industry. The accumulated real estate investing experience of his team is way beyond 100 years. Having experience in the Australian, UK, US and Singapore market, he's here to share with us more in-depth about the US real estate market. He's none other than the MD of Investment and Asset Management at Real Vantage, Mark Ho. This episode will give you more insights about the US real estate market. So, let's go. What was the first property in US? Uh, we went to a multi-family asset. So, I think even this term, a lot of people here may not be as familiar. Yeah. I think uh, conceptually, it's simply called uh, condo for rent. right? Okay. So, the whole condo is uh, it's not like a strata title and then you sell multiple owners. That's not it. You can see like a commercial investment. Basically, it's one building mm. and it's rented out. But instead to companies, it's rented to uh, residential uh, you know, purposes. La. Okay. So, th- there's only one landlord, la, not Correct. multiple landlords. Correct. Okay. okay. Correct. So, this kind of things is a bit different from Singapore. Like, for example, we buy apartments, right? And then we have to play mini landlords. Now, you only take care of what happens inside your unit and everything, right? But once you have a whole complex that is, uh, you know, targeted at renters, mm. It allows like whoever the operator is, if they are professional enough and everything, they can manage your expenses and everything. So that rent is only a is an important component of your returns. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the important thing is your net operating income. That means it's not the only element, right? You have your expenses. Yes. Uh, so with uh, properly proper management, the economies of scale, whatever, it can actually move the needle, right, for your NOI without your rentals even changing at all. Mm. Yeah. So it's something like Capital Land building their own condo and then they rent out to Correct. people. Correct. 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 So what are some strategies to reduce your expenses then? Uh, for example, you can, uh, no, once you have scale, right? Let's say now you are one apartment owner, you go and ask a property manager, he's going to charge you a certain fee. I, when I tell you, hey, you do this, all right? But you, are, you have 225 units to manage at one point in time. So instead of say you charge me like 0.5%, 0.75% a year, I say, hey, 2, 0.2% and take your leave. You're not interested, I'm going to find someone else. So all these other things, like, once you have scale, a lot of things can be done, right? And for example, I'm procuring like for example, a uh, dishwasher. I mean, US people like to use, and it's something that the tenant from surveys is important to them. 
I'm not buying one. I'm going to someone I can buy. You know, all these are cost savings uh, and uh, here and there, you know, yet. Yeah, so right now, are there only uh, multifamily properties that you are looking at or there are other forms of uh, property investment in US? Yeah, so I think uh, our starting point is uh, we are fairly sector agnostic. We, and I mean, it also draws on previous experience. Like we were not like just pigeonholed into one particular sector. But having said that, the only thing that threads across all the deals we look at is on a risk-adjusted returns basis, it has to be attractive enough. La, right? Currently, we like multifamily. Right? Uh, office, we are a bit uh, iffy. There are quite a lot of changes afoot. Multifamily is uh, one of the most stable and resilient ones. La. Like Even looking at data through the last one year or so, when people say like um, risk adjusted, right? Mm. Fundamentally, you know, we gotta talk about the risk factors, right? Correct. So, so what do you, what are the risk factors in this space? In the multifamily space, is it? Yeah. Okay. So I think uh, it's a very good question. Um, I mean, eventually, whatever deal you go into, you have to be very clear before you go in. It's like yeah, you gotta know what you're doing, right? So what's going to drive your returns? <laughs> yeah. Right. And then uh, whether your those returns drivers or uh, your assumptions are clear or not. The flip side of it is, is the risk, lah, right? Mm. So for multifamily, um, we don't like to be heroes going to areas where infrastructure is, uh, you know, being developed. In three years' times, you'll be this, but today it's not that. Uh, we tend not to favor. You know, the banking a lot on uh, something's happening, right? Um, we go there. I mean, the main reason why people invest in multifamily is because it's resilient. It's the the yield is already there. Yes, so the, you know. Wait, so, so you're saying like matured estates? Matured, right. Okay, so then there's no big giant developments around Correct. that kind of... That Even if there is, uh, we're not banking on them to drive the returns per se. If it comes and it, you know, it's a bonus. Yeah, that's okay. what I'm saying. So other risk would be like, say, um, the risk of uh, the operator not doing a good job, right? Uh, I can't stress enough the importance of having the, the right operator la, because at the end of the day, we are so many miles away and uh, there's time zone difference and everything. <laughs> you know, if something comes up, it can't be like, uh, I can't give you a decision like with a one or two day like You know, in residence, that's not the kind of things that keep residents loyal or, you yeah. know. So, catchment as well. Um, for multifamily, you want to know who exactly your profile is. Um, once you do that, like for example, you're going for the young professionals, you know what your rental levels are. Not everyone can afford that kind of level. So once you have packed it to that segment, then you have to see, you know, are there enough uh, centers of employment around, right? Are companies moving in or out of the area, right? Uh, you know, people will follow the jobs and stuff like that. So all these are like the fundamentals, yeah, the risk factors lah, you have to be careful about. Okay, that's cool. So then which areas uh, are you are you most confident of then? Like because in Singapore is, mm. you know, I think most of our audience are Singaporeans, right? Mm. And when Singaporeans look at property, they don't really look at these kind of demographic changes mm. or like different states, different job profile. Correct, it's a different country. Because everybody everybody can get can come to City Hall in the first place and work. Correct. So it doesn't really matter as much. Correct. You know, but when we are looking in the US, different states, different, Correct. you know, cities, different kind of job profile, Correct. different places, Correct. right? So give us some ideas, give us some textures as to you know, where you're looking at, you know, okay. what is the color here? Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. I think people here might have been conditioned that uh, to look at a, a country as just one place, which is, uh, <laughs> which could be very fatal uh, yeah. going yeah. to the US. Mm. Um, and I'll also add that um, running up to the COVID situation for quite a while now, um, there have been, the push factors for certain locations have been building, right? Um, the cost of living, uh, the cost of doing businesses and stuff like that. And 
I'm not sure if I should say, unfortunately, these are places where Singaporeans are more familiar with your New York, your California, your Bay Area. And even before COVID, like I said, uh, it's not unusual to see like a young professional having to live very far away from work or crammed into a certain apartment. And actually, it's making a pretty decent pay. And the reason is only because cost of living has skyrocketed, right? Mm. So at some point in time, you've got to see like, no, something has to give. But well, COVID coming has sort of accelerated this. And uh, I don't want to say, okay, maybe exodus is not the right word. But certainly it's uh, accelerated people moving out of these businesses as well, mm. right? To lower cost, uh, more competitive locations that offer value. Right? It's not, it's, yeah, we're talking about value. Like for example, mm. Texas and Florida. Yeah, that, right? that was what I was going for. Like, like, Am I sensing Houston here? <laughs> yeah, so Houston, you know, part of Texas. Mm. These places, why? Because uh, Texas, tax-wise, right? Yeah, Texas in Texas are... Uh, very competitive. Uh, big companies are already moving there. And once they do that, obviously then uh, people move along and smaller companies move along with them. Yeah, right? Tesla just moved there also, right? Correct. A lot of people have, right? Uh, a lot of people have moved into Dallas, Fort Worth even before that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when it comes to investing in multifamily, you just have to follow the jobs. Mm. Right? And uh, this trend is probably ongoing for like a year, year plus. Um, I don't see it stopping anytime soon. Even if COVID were to go away, uh, you know, the momentum has started and companies have really put down roots and signed uh, fairly long leases like, in some of these new places. Yeah. yeah. And people are okay to work remote also. So that further reinforces this trend. Uh? Correct, right? So there's no compelling reason to say pay through your nose for, you know, high cost, whether it's to do business or to stay somewhere. Now you mm. have more choices and uh, so we have to be cognizant uh, of all these uh, dynamics that's going on and that's how we select uh places that we like to hunt uh, for projects. Yeah. I think you've rightfully pointed out that Texas, you know, has more competitive taxes. Mm, mm, <laughs> yep. Right. So more competitive taxation, more big companies will shift there, more jobs over yep. there. Yep. Compelling jobs, compelling young people to go there. Yep. And then, you know, your property prices, residential property prices will reflect. Yep. Right. Other than taxes, you know, are, are we seeing other spaces that are oh, trying yeah. to compete? Oh yeah, so many, I mean, with the traditional hotspots now already like kind of losing the luster of competitiveness, you can be sure that a lot of other cities, you know, with their own mayors and everything, I mean, they will be trying to like gun to be the next, you know, to capitalize like, on this. So for us, uh, besides Florida, Texas, there are other things like, we call them Sunbelt cities. Uh, they'll be a bit more Midwestern. In fact, one of the our first uh, US project in Atlanta, that we will classify as one of the Sunbelt cities, right? Mm. Um, again, lower cost of living, but they're not giving up much on their infrastructure. They are still very well developed, very well, uh, you know, supported by all this kind of stuff. Um, and then there are all sorts of uh, terminologies being thrown around, uh, like uh, eighteen-hour cities. You know what that means is certain cities. Last time when they were like uh, less developed or less people staying there, uh, it could be like your perf. Like you know, after a certain time, everybody goes to sleep and the businesses <laughs> close, yeah. right? Yeah. But obviously, some of them are becoming more vibrant. <laughs> very sienna, very sienna. Correct, correct. Just saying. <laughs> Correct. So there are like emergence of all these uh, smaller cities vying for that. And some of these cities, I would say like maybe Singaporeans may, or Singapore-based investors may be less uh, familiar with. Mm. St. Louis, you know, or even Kansas. And example, people might have certain preconceptions that these are very backwards places, which mm. is, uh, I think is wrong. Yeah. Mm. What about um, cities that were once huge? You know, places like Detroit, 
mm. you know, um, Chicago area, you know, mm. those, they used to be huge manufacturing hubs, right? Correct. So they have very, very well-developed, well you know, um, city center and infrastructures, Correct. right? It's just that after the exodus of manufacturing, yep. people shifted elsewhere yep. and job profile changed, yep. right? So then are we seeing numbers coming back into the cities, you know, and capitalizing on the already developed infrastructure? Yeah, so it's not so much just the infrastructure, it's like economics, um, it's quite a com uh, complex topic. Mm. Like, but That's why we have you, man. Right? No, no. Yeah, you have to share with us. No, no, just sharing views, right? Yes, I mean, yes. there's no right or wrong. Yes, yes. Um, one thing that is different, especially for, let's say when you compare US investing to Singapore is, some of the companies there actually, I mean, they, they, move, they do, their decisions do shift the needle uh, quite a lot. Right, we're talking about MNCs, their headquarters, being in a certain city and then moving away, it the city does feel it. All right, for places like Detroit, all this, um, they have been losing the competitiveness on, let's say, car manufacturing. This has been long time coming, right? Yeah, right. It's not just a US competition; it's from many other countries, right? Exerting the kind of pressure. So right now, I don't really see that the city has uh, found a replacement. Um, you know, they are losing to like they're not carving themselves out to be a tech hub or anything mm. like that, which is the, the area to be. La. So, um, these are areas to where we might be a little more uh, careful about. Mm. Yeah, so area to be that's that's what I'm hearing for you know tech hubs. Yeah. So, is, is that where, where you're doubling down on? Absolutely, okay. right? Uh, either tech hubs or even say financial center. I mean, obviously, the first thing that comes to mind is New York City, but. Uh, increasingly, you will find that some of them are slowly moving even down to uh, Florida already. Mm, right? mm. So, yeah, these are the kind of uh, things that we have to be cognizant about. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, give me a little bit of color of like, who are you trying to woo in terms of your tenants, right? Because from what you said, like tech hub, you know, jobs, all that. So I'm trying to just get a, you know, give us all a clearer picture of like, what's yeah. the tenant that you're trying to go okay. for? Yeah. Uh, there's no one broad brush. It really depends on the location and what the, the micro location is about. So, for example, I mean, if you're looking at an area where there's, a, you know, it's anchored, the biggest employer there is, say, the hospital and uh, the school nearby and they are the biggest uh, employer. Then if I'm looking at a, a project nearby, like, say, within a vicinity of five miles, then I have to be sure, like, uh, you know, this, this is not an area where I expect, uh, you know, employment to go down anytime soon or there's a risk of these guys are moving. So, yeah, it really depends. I'm not, like, obsessed with, like, just going after tech, per se. Yeah. But it's just one of the more sexy places to look at like, these days. What, what are the risks, let's say, you, you invest in that multifamily for that hospital mm. or for that tech? How do you take into account that risk? Yeah, so, typically, just for, I mean, I will use the Atlanta one as an example, right? There is risk when you bank too hard on one particular segment. I mean, mm. that's why Atlanta, we loved it because uh, the, the makeup of the economy is pretty diverse, right? Yeah. Uh, Coke is there, UPS is there, you know, all these Fortune 500 MNCs, mm. right? Stacey Abraham is there, right. just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, politician, politician. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Delta is there, okay? So obviously we know that Delta is, uh, you know, given the current situation, they could be struggling, right? But then again, when you go to a more diversified place, right, you know that, oh, then UPS logistics might be making up for the shortfall mm. there and the kind of thing. So um, if we ever do look at a, an opportunity where really it's just banking very hard on a single propeller plane, right, then we have to be extremely sure. I'm not saying that we will never do that. Mm. But as and by and large, like, I think uh, it's better to hatch with a more diversified economy. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I like yeah. that. I, I like the thought of like recognizing that the state 
you know, needs to have the resilience and diversity. Correct. You know, so then you're not banging on that one factory shifting out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah. Or someone moving in. Yeah, the one. Yeah. yeah. But let's say let's say you have maybe six or ten industries. Mm. Your diversification depends on that. Are there any systemic risks in investing in US for a Singaporean investor that is regardless of your industry? Yeah. There will be. I mean, there will, even investing within Singapore, I mean, there's there'll always be systemic risk. Uh, the question is, uh, yeah, you have to assess how, how high it is. But I mean, for a country or a market as large as the US, uh, for systemic risk to come, I think uh, we have like maybe more than 100 years of uh, experience looking at the kind of market really, right? That uh, I don't really foresee, you know, such a, even for you know, something as extreme as the GFC mm. or recently COVID, you know, it has... Wait, wait, GFC is Great Financial Crisis. Huh? Yeah. Okay, correct. okay. The Global <laughs> Financial Crisis. A lot of acronym crisis. throwing around. Huh? Just yeah, trying to bad. clarify. Yes, yes. It's yeah, okay. You, you know, your profesh, most of people like that one. Yes, I get yeah. it. I get it. So those were pretty extreme situations really. Lah. And, uh, you know, obviously you will dislocate the market in the near term, but uh, within a matter of one or two years, you can see that uh, the trends come back in and everything. But yeah, you're right. There will be systemic risk. Things like uh, interest rate movements, all these big uh, adverse movements, you can treat it as a systemic risk as well. Mm, right? Currency fluctuations. Also. Correct. But I mean, that's why we watch a lot of things uh, very carefully, like what the Fed is uh, telegraphing, right? Uh, in fact, the Fed's job is to, the Federal Reserve, right? That controls the, the interest rate. Their job is not to like surprise the market. I mean, if they do surprise the market, I tell you they're probably doing a really bad job, right? Mm-hmm. So they always try to like te- telegraph ahead and guide the market towards where they want to land in a very controlled manner, right? Yeah. Mm. So then when we talk about like other than the macro ideas, right? Um, mm. If we want to raise the yields of, you know, the particular class of property mm. that you're doing, mm. right? So, okay, just to, I think, clean up a little bit of idea of multi-family uh, spaces, mm. essentially just like a very small condo, a very small apartment. It can be very small up to even thousand over, it can be very large. Okay, yeah. okay. So so just to give people some sort of idea, you know, because, you know, over here we don't call these kind of places yep. multi-family, right? Yep. Just like something like an apartment building. Yep. Okay, so, you know, how do I engineer more yield then in mm. this space? Mm. Yeah. This is a very good question. So it relates back to earlier on what I said, whenever you go into something, you need to be clear what's going to be driving your returns, yes. right? For example, if you're already like investing into a new build, one is very shiny, everything works, you know, then at a point in time, I would be seeing, thinking like, you know, there's really nothing much, uh, there's quite limited, relatively more limited stuff that you can do to, to check out the yields, right? Um, that's why, I mean, like again for the Atlanta one, why is it uh, attractive? Because it's not super old, like 1970 completion in 1980. Actually, there are a lot of such things in the US, right? Um, relatively new in the 2000, late to almost, it was completed 2008, if I remember correctly. But so somewhere in there, coming uh, 12 years in, right? And then you have to, we go, we do as detailed as uh, room by room kind of inspection. Um, and then we will identify what are the areas that this, where you need to touch up, all right? Mm-hmm. So you need to like identify down to the details, like mm-hmm. what it is that you need to do to the apartment to make it look more rentable to a, or more palatable to a potential tenant viewing it, mm-hmm. right? So you have to go down to the kind of details. Uh, other things to say, check out the yield would be as simple as, uh, you know, now more and more e-commerce uh, deliveries are, you know, just setting up lockers, uh, retrievable, secure lockers uh, under a video, uh, with a video cam and kind of environment. 
that kind of things uh, also helps to uh, it doesn't move the needle per se but it does increase your other income, receivable income right mm-hmm. so you just have to be a bit more creative uh, you know put yourself in the shoes of the tenant what you need right and whether the landlord can monetize one way or another from that mm-hmm. and it's a win-win right you provide a service the guy is paying meets his requirements or yeah this kind of things Hey Coconuts, if you're someone who wants to learn how to pick stocks to make passive income, this is for you. The fifth person has created a dividend investing program that teaches you how to invest for income while avoiding the companies that will go bankrupt. Thousands of people have already taken their program and are getting between 8 to 12% each year. They've just opened up a whole new intake and if you sign up through us, you'll be getting access to our members back end too, which is focused on the very thing you're interested in, investing. Learn more at thefinancialcoconut.com slash dividend. That's thefinancialcoconut.com slash dividend. Link is in the description below. So I, I get the idea, right? You're trying to like um, make the place very nice, very tenable. And then like, you know, if it's uh, between a thousand five next door of something that's Correct. not so sweet compared to a thousand eight of something Correct. that, oh, a little bit more sweet, this place nicer. Correct. Most people rent it. I mean, I'm as a consumer, that is my experience, Correct. right? I will do it. You know, but if we're talking about like strategically engineering deals, like um, cutting up spaces mm. or, you know, like... Um, additional services and mm. all those kind of thing. Is that as easy to be done in the US? Um, because compared to, because yeah. compared to here, it's not easy, right? Chopping up spaces and everything, very mahuan, yeah. right? So I want to, you know, I, I have friends that are doing that in the US, yeah. right? Where they cut up spaces, like they get one bungalow kind of half, they reapply and then they sell out, you know? Yeah. So they, they make that very big marginal difference. Yep. Right, so is is that a common practice in the US? I just want to get yeah. your thoughts so, on that. So, I mean, parts of US, yes, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, that's why the research is so important. Like, for example, you're talking about, say, coming back to the Bay Area again, right? That kind of, uh, you know, carving out to a smaller space and renting out for higher yield, combined yield, uh, that's a very viable play, mm. right? But where you're going to, uh, say, lower cost uh, city, uh. Uh, then you must find enough data points to support that there is a demand out there for mm, that kind of mm, things, mm, right? Mm. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, there's another project that we, we looked at. In the whole area there, the sub-market, you realise that the rents are interestingly higher for larger units, even on a per square foot basis. Oh, okay. Right? And typically, we don't really... It's quite an unusual situation. And when you look at enough data points, hey, how come this project... and then down the road, three projects on the road and stuff like that, you kind of like come to the, you know, the thinking that perhaps the the area is undersupplied in large units, right? Mm, mm. Then then we have to be careful like coming, like executing the kind of uh, strategy I mentioned earlier that maybe it might backfire. Fair, right? fair. Yeah. Okay, that's some clarity. Yeah. It's cool. So it's all micro market research as well. Mm, yeah. mm. Very specific to the space and Correct. You know, compare them. And the very good reason about why we like the US is it's very easy to get the, the information. It's very transparent. It's, you know, US, UK and Australia are the top three most transparent markets in the world. If you mm-hmm. spend the effort and time, you should be able to get sufficient data for you to to evaluate and analyze. Mm. You mean as a single investor without uh, some expert helping them? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, you can do it. Assuming the person knows what to look out for, he, can, he, can, he or she can do it. So what are some things to look out for then? You have to be more specific than that. <laughs> As you say, like, you know, if they know what to look out for, right? So how do I determine that this is a property that is buyable? Like, what is your matrix for deciding that, okay, I will buy this at this price? Yep. 
So, I mean, um, we've already talked about, say, being sure, like, where, yeah, where what your, what, who your tenant target who is. Who your tenant target, what is the demand, you know, um, the, the, the physical reality of the space. Correct. We talked about all that. So, Correct. what is the, you know, price and the, the magical numbers that we So, the magical numbers is you must look at all the comparables, right? Whether it's rental comps, right? What people are paying to rent something similar and uh, what people are paying to buy something similar, right? Uh, transaction comps, right? Again, for most of the cities that we operate in, uh, they are easily available. Sometimes, of course, you have to pay. So for a single person, unless you're you know, looking at a big ticket investment, paying for that service may or may not make sense to you. You don't have yeah. economies, right? Mm. For us, it's different because a lot of our investors come together and although each of them may not be putting out a crazy amount, it's a flexible quantum amount that they are comfortable with. But when we come together, we have that kind of economies to say, make sure that our research is well backed up and we can, you know, when we share the cost amongst uh, you know, all investors, it makes sense. And then the trick of in real estate is always no two projects are always alike, right? So you look at the comps, it's just numbers looking at it miles away, right? You need to have like uh, enough information to say, are we comparing apples to orange, which we can still imagine what the difference might be, or apples to durians. Well, that's like, you know, you know so you have to have people on the ground to, to go and inspect and people who know what to look out for, basically. Yeah. Mm. But but comparables are essentially just if you bought something at a million, I want to buy the mm. similar thing at a million. I don't want to be buying more, right? Yep. But it does not translate to like what is the underlying value of this property. If enough people, tra- I mean, if, if there are enough transactions going on, and everything, what the value of the property is, what the market would tell you, what people are paying for at the end of the so day. So that is the property market. Correct. There is no like way to calculate an intrinsic value. No, it's not. It's not exactly a science, right? So. Even if a market, a lot of people pay for this, right? Sometimes for us, it, yeah, you still have to make a view. You're making an investment. You still have to take a view. Do I agree that these guys are misguided or for whatever reasons? So these people are all owner-occupiers coming by in the area. And they, the owner-occupiers are the ones who are driving the you know, the, the capital values. But the thing is, if I'm going to a multifamily, I'm looking to rent, right? Then I think you have to make, you have to triangulate towards what makes sense, right? Yeah, don't be like, you must understand the context of why people are paying certain prices. Let's not talk about multifamily. Even for commercial, right? If I'm if I'm like looking at a, a comparable where someone bought at a pretty high price, and I and I I wonder why is he paying such a high price? It could be like inside the lease agreement, there could be some kind of a lease back at a pretty high rental rate as well, right? The guy wants to free up his working capital. He wants to sell you at a high price, but he leases back at a high rent, but he manages his capital. Now, these kind of things you have to know so that you know, you can adjust from all these comparables to what you think makes sense for you. So it's a lot of work. Mm. <laughs> so getting a, getting a data is one thing. Uh, making sense of it in the right way is another thing. Yeah. And having that, wow, all the time and effort is is another thing altogether. Yeah, yeah. because if you just take all the transactions at face value, then some of the prices might be inflated or so. Correct. But if you again, if you have a lot of data points in one area, if it's a well, very highly liquid market, then there's less of a risk that you are probably like, uh, you know, too off the mark. Then right? if the market becomes so efficient, right, with so much data out there, right, how how do you like, how do you know that you are getting a good deal? At best, you're getting a fair deal, right? Um, you know what I'm saying? No, I highly think generally, generally that's correct, right? I mean, the more transparent, the more liquid a market is. Uh, the harder it is to 
like out like perform by a mile. Not very hard to correct. <laughs> but at the end of the day, but the other way to look at it is uh, from a risk perspective, right? For example, I can go into let's say a market like Cambodia, and because of certain special things that I have, like a certain relationship, I can get certain things done that others cannot, or I have certain information way in advance of others. But then again, you know the risk that comes along with operating in that kind of places is yeah. uh, on a different order of magnitude, right? So at the end of the day, I mean, I I'm not sure that what you know financial like uh, coconut might advocate. We're not like going in to say uh, we want to make outsized returns all the time, right? Mm. Uh, it's a very diversified, uh, very stable kind of investment approach that we advocate, lah. So that you know you're planning for retirement. We're not banking on like oh, I'm gonna double my my wealth in three years. Ah, uh, that's yeah. Fair, fair. I, I get that. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. Is there like a um, investment hold period that you usually like to before you recycle your capital, sell the property? Yeah, it's a good question. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, I know my strategy to drive the returns. Uh, it's a refurb A and A kind of uh, exercise, and um, what I know is I'm A and A. Uh, sorry, alterations and additions. Okay, like you can call it refurbs, uh, refurbishments. Okay. So that means right? I buy this thing, not so sweet, then I clean it up, I make it, Correct. I've, you know, beautify it and do all the stuff. Correct. I might have to put in a little bit more capex or what we call like capital expenditure, okay. right? Buy new sofa, paint the wall, yeah. partition, those kind of things. Correct. Okay. So whichever you have identified the problems to be, right? Mm. Um, so where was I? So we do like uh, the kind of uh, refurb play and usually they don't go longer than two years, lah. Right. Okay. So if everything goes like uh, base assumptions, then my exit would be, you know, I can visualize my exit in about three years. Mm. So once you execute two years, uh, you get your tenants to either renew at higher, you know, rents, or you get new tenants who appreciate the you know, what has been done and pay the correspondingly higher rents. And once your NY is up to the level that you have uh, reached, you know, you can look to capitalize and sell. But then you have to give yourself maybe say f- six months to run a. Uh, optimize the divestment campaign, right? Mm. So all about for that kind of strategy, three years. If you're buying to something that's, uh, you know, say a Walmart, <laughs> I mean, this is not multifamily, it's commercial. There's nothing much to do to it. Uh, it could be triple net lease and what that means is, uh, you know, the tenant, in this case, Walmart, they pay for everything like uh, from uh, building maintenance, uh, repairs, uh, to taxes. So that then the, it's very easy for the landlord in a sense, right? Now this kind you might have to hold on for longer, maybe so for up to four or five years for your investment to make sense. Because otherwise, uh, without the value-add component, right, your transaction cost, if you go in and out too fast, uh, then it's not worth the effort and time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the transaction cost? How does it look like in the US? Uh, the transaction cost, because it's such a liquid market and everything, uh, I wouldn't say it's prohibitively high compared to, say, Vietnam or that kind of market. Uh, the only thing you have to be careful of is uh, not to apply the same transaction cost to the whole US because uh, every state, even down to the counties, uh, have different uh, taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and all these, there are at least three layers of tax that uh, you know investors have to, at the federal level, then at the state level, and even down to the, the district or county level sometimes. So hard to answer your question. Uh, I would say the round trip kind of uh, investment cost for transaction for places like Florida or Texas would be a lot lower than say if you go to New York where it's like eight percent already at state level. At Florida and Texas, they don't have uh, state tax. La. So it's like zero compared to eight percent. Yes, but I mean, uh, you could say that, but yeah. uh, you have to 
factoring all the three layers of taxes. And there are many ways you can mitigate that. So actually, at the end of the day, the difference may not be as large, but it's still very significant. Yeah. yeah I would say that, yeah. Mm. No, like, but taxation, you know, it's... I just want to get a clearer idea of, yeah. like, what kind of tax? How do they tax? Are they taxing transaction? Are they taxing net value of the property? Because it has changed hands... Is it like a wealth tax? You know, like Correct. how is how is the taxing like? Because over here, you literally just, you know, pay the stamp duties and you 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 pay your your agents and, yeah. and things. This is turn a around, huge. Right? This is a huge topic. Um, mm. Give us a little bit of juice. Yes. Yeah. So I think uh, on a conceptual level, is there are many similarities to the Singapore. Like for example, first and foremost, uh, all the tax related to the transaction, right? So you have a stamp duty, you have capital gains tax, and the kind of stuff. And as I mentioned earlier, there are three layers of tax, right? You pay the county level first, then you pay your state level, then finally you pay your federal level, okay? Um, now, while you are like uh, operating the or owning the, the asset, there is ongoing uh, taxes on your rental income, mainly your income, right? Whatever income is coming in. Of course, then you use your normal kind of uh, measures, like for example, your, your debt servicing leverage to sort of like reduce your taxable income. And then uh, your depreciation. So you also have to be very clear in that area that you are, the location they are operating in. How should depreciation? How is depreciation allowed to to occur? Is it straight line? Uh, you buy the building. Is it just on the land or the building? In the US, it's just a building, lah, right? You don't depreciate land, and uh, all the stuff that goes inside your building. A lot of things can be depreciated as well. So mm. you need to get a professional to do a cost segregation study. Mm. And then once you have all those numbers, right, from a professional, uh, then you can engage the authorities to say, these things I'm not going to be paying taxes for because uh, it is depreciating, right? Yeah. Okay, so you, can, a huge you can claim back your depreciation in that sense. Correct, but you have a strong basis for it. La. So that's okay. why it's not like us are going to, we have to engage the right people to, to do this. Right? Cool, cool. So as a single smallish investor to try and even access the benefits of doing all this is the economy is not there whether you might go through it by the other day whether it makes sense to them at that level question mark right that's why uh, you know, Real Vantage the way we do it we are trying to like extend the benefit to everybody else and then uh, together at least uh, we can enjoy these kind of benefits yeah Cool, thanks. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about comparing between states, let's say the taxes and everything. But let's say if a Singapore investor wants to compare between Singapore properties, Australian and US properties, mm. how does the attractiveness of US play between these three countries? First and foremost, I, I know I'm Singaporean and I, I have nothing against investing in Singapore properties. But like it or not, um, it is a very small market. And let's just, and it's very hard to, let's, let's just take residential property, for example. Um, the policymakers here have already made it clear, right, uh, that they are not really ready to tolerate uh, aggressive capital movements, uh, value movements, right? Prices, la, that means. So the way we underwrite and we assume we don't want to go against the policy, they can always like, react. Let's say the market runs up fast, they can always tighten some screws or loosen some screws, right? So we have to take their guidance from that. In terms of yield, I think uh, there's sufficient empirical data to say that that's not going to be driving your returns. By, it doesn't shift the needle by much. Right? If you can even cover, get into positive territory, that's okay. That's not too bad. And I don't think that's attractive to me like, at this point in time. You know I'm saying it could change down the road. So what's attractive about, say, Australia and uh, US now is that 
Um, the yields are still very meaningful, right? Uh, you can still like after leverage get up to about eight nine percent yield. Uh, it's very possible. We are comparing just residential to residential. Right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So like the the multifamily you went into like uh, two hundred twenty five units, it's already spitting out a yield of about say seven ish. You know that kind of things. It's a very de deducted the taxes or correct net take home yield. So I've already like taken out all fees. I've already taken out all taxes. So this is a take home can spend kind of yield, right? So I mean from that basis, I would say it's a lot more uh, attractive, yeah. So until one day when I feel that oh maybe the capital value appreciation here in Singapore is about to the situation is about to change, and I think that can uh, compensate me for the low yield. Otherwise, I, I I find the US more attractive. Yeah. I think even our local REITs are buying a lot of foreign properties. So, yeah. Correct. If we use the REITs, you see, I mean, Singapore, it's the same thing. The Singapore I mean, is the too small vehicle, for them. Right? Yeah, Correct. Yeah. Too, Singapore is too small a market for these REITs. And if they are just banking or just being a Singapore play, mm. uh, I don't think the investors after a while will take too well. They have to be able to seek growth uh, in other markets. Mm. So, yeah, that's happening. You're right. So, what's the biggest mindset pitfall that you, you have seen recently? that a Singaporean investor brings to US and then he suffers because of this mindset pitfall? Yeah. So, um, one example could be like, uh, you would think, uh, Singapore are quite, Singaporean-based investors are quite by the book, I would say in general, right? Mm. And you would think that uh, because the tenancy agreement uh, captures certain things adequately, spelled black and white, uh, then it's all good. But uh, there are a lot of other things like, for example, if your multifamily asset services a lower income profile, for example, um, and a COVID situation hits and, uh, you know, suddenly you have um, a lot of errant tenants to, to, to deal with. Whether you can just go in there and rectify and get them out of it is not as simple as it is, right? Um, other things that we have to be careful of is, for example... In Singapore, I think we are spoiled by how well the government runs the the planning. The URA has done an absolutely fabulous job, right? But over there, in some of the cities, things things are a bit more fluid, right? Uh, a piece of land is there. Uh, you you can you can go to the government and say, I would like to propose this kind of project, whatever it is. But then again, the re the people around the area have a very big voice, mm -hmm. right? Um, the planning risk is not as is is it could be higher than uh, in Singapore. Right in certain places, uh, you have to take care of the 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 people around you, la. right? So that's why I mean this term nimbyism is a real thing there. Uh, it stands it's spelled N I M B Y, not in my own backyard, right? It's an acronym. It's not quite a thing here because I mean we do have a little bit of that, but it's not quite a thing here as compared to the US, because like if you want to build something and uh, the the residents do not welcome it. Uh, you're going to have a big fight, right? And the local planning councils and stuff like that, uh, sometimes guess who they get their votes from, right? So they kind of also, they have to balance la, what, what the neighborhood needs and what the residents are happy or not happy about. Right? Yeah. So these are the things that uh, perhaps from a Singapore investor's perspective, it could be somewhat new. And to get a grip on the, the whole handle, is, uh, you know, it takes a little bit of time. What about the cultural nuances of you know, the rentees there, and the so, renters there. So that itself is already a cultural thing. This uh, nimbism thing is really a cultural mm -hmm. thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they feel that they're entitled to their status quo and you know, don't come and disturb me, the kind of things. Yeah, the renters-wise, if you're a multifamily asset, uh, you also 
I wouldn't call it a culture thing, lah. Okay. Uh, make sure you know who your profile is. If you are going after the younger ones or singles and you know that your units are smaller ones, this is different from uh, trying to have a family uh, kind of location where you're renting a small families or three-bedroom kind of stuff, right? Your wear and tear, all this, it translates in, into real numbers, right? Uh, whether the people there take care of your, your tenants, uh, your unit, or they're just there and do whatever you want, rip it apart and bye-bye, uh, and you're sitting here thousands of miles away. These are the provisions that you have to be careful of. La. So I'm getting into really detailed stuff already. Right? Um, and of course, some of this is true experience. Yeah. Cool. Anything else you want to add? So when we end up, I just want to say one thing. Um, it's not easy uh, for somebody who doesn't, who hasn't spent enough time and over the, you know, it's, it's years of uh, learning to just go to the US and say, I want to... I'm going to get exposure here. I'm going to invest. Yeah. Take a plane too, there and just buy. You know? Correct. I think there are just too many pitfalls uh, that, you know, as a new guy, you probably would have to end up paying a little bit of school fees here and there. There's no shortcut or substitution for building up the knowledge, but that takes time, right? So one way to help short circuit that is, for example, um, to go in with somebody else who's already more experienced, right? And at the same time, don't go and bet the house on it. Obviously, like, you know, someone who's able to accommodate your more flexible quantum, then that's fine. Go in small. And when you go through the whole journey, take it as a case study, right? Um, like the way uh, Real Vantage has operated is we're quite transparent in showing what's going to drive our rental. Why is it, why is our view, you know, like that? And why is it based off, all right? It's all transparent. And even the assumptions that we make, right? So, Take a more, you know, like analytical mind to it. You may or may not agree. That's fine. But at least you know our starting point. You can then adjust accordingly. Like if I'm saying I expect 3% or 4% annual rental growth and you don't agree with me for whatever reason, that's fine. But at least you know where we are and how the numbers we arrive at, right? So I think going through this kind of uh, experience helps a, new, a newer, a relatively newer investor to learn faster. Yeah, that's what I think. Hey, thanks for taking time to tune in. I hope you have learned a little bit more about property investing today. If you feel like you have benefited from this podcast, do share this with your loved ones. And also, do follow us on all our socials and join our community telegram group and tell us what you are interested to know about next. Everything is in the description below. Have a great day ahead, guys. And always remember, when we are better prepared, the next opportunity is just around the corner. See you next week. For someone who hasn't invested in the US real estate market before, it's just not possible to know how cultural differences can affect investing. I can only imagine how careful you need to be with your real estate investment in US with all the different rights they have and all the widespread use of litigation. I don't know why, but I just have a feeling there are more types of property investments and more matrix to look out for in the US real estate market than a combined from UK and Australia. Because first of all, there are different levels of taxes to consider between states. And then in each big city, you have to look at how much the economy is dependent on a particular workforce. Because the overall economic landscape in the next five years and the target audience demographics will affect the type of property you want to invest in today. So after interviewing Mark, I had two questions for myself, also for you. The first one is, can you invest in a US real estate market on your own? And the second is, should you do it on your own? The answer for the first is, of course, yes, you can. All the data and research are online. If you have time and dedication you know, and you're a meticulous person, why not? 
But even if you can do it on your own, does that mean you should do it on your own? Because the thing to understand is real estate investing is not as straightforward as stock investing. You can invest on your own for stock. With that said, I'm not saying that investing in stocks is easy. It's just that the process is more straightforward. You can just buy and sell on the app in the comfort of your home. For real estate investing, you still need to do a lot of learning, a lot of research, a lot of contextualized you know, information is in the market that you can't find on an app. And we have to understand that whichever field we go into, there's a learning curve for sure. And there's a price to pay when we make mistakes and learn. The fact is that we'll never be as experienced as the people who are on the ground daily and they are doing this as their career and have been there for so many years. If we can put it simply, these people have already paid the learning fees. The real estate industry is changing and more real estate investment funds are coming onto the market, providing thorough research to investors. Gone are the days when you need to invest 500k into a property overseas and own it fully. Some funds allow you to invest as little as $50,000 and that's one of the advantages of economies of scale. Times are changing and with information being easily accessible, risks being better predicted and yields more accurately forecasted, I believe more and more Singaporeans will look at real estate investing outside of Singapore for their portfolio diversification. So yeah, these are some of my thoughts I hope they give you some food for thought as well. Let us know what you think about this episode in our Telegram community group. See you next week.